All right, welcome back everybody to Let's Break It Down, episode number two. Congratulations on making it all the way through episode one. We're super glad you made it, you came back with us, and uh, Brian and I are pumped to uh, be talking about the Pacific Division today. Yeah, man, I'm excited to do another episode. It's uh, it's another step in our journey, but we're going to keep trudging ahead, thanks to everybody who's listening and continuing to listen for a second time. Yeah. Do you want to address something last time? Uh, both Brian and I are dads. Plenty of background kid noise in the first one. And uh, I think we're just going to embrace it and roll with it. I kind of like it. Hey, we are who we are. It's it's our life. It's what's actually happening. So uh, it shouldn't be a problem. Hopefully uh, we get a little less of that as we go along. But uh, throughout the course of the podcast and down the line, if you happen to get some kid interaction, maybe a little family interaction, uh, all the merrier. We're trying to include the families in what we do and everything we do essentially so uh, i'm happy they were at least there to see the first one and uh, be heard even if it was unintentionally yeah well i love sitting down my older son benji he actually watched a lot of season one with me and in between the matches they'd roll stats while the casters were talking and so it would come up with players and he'd be like who's that oh that's genji and he'd be oh it's genji so that was pretty fun hopefully he becomes passionate about something like this and it'll be fun for us to enjoy overwatch league together i did want to go over uh not sure we really address it in episode one but the format for the podcast that we're going to try and release a podcast once per week um i don't foresee that changing but um you know hopefully if this takes off a lot of people are interested a lot of people connect with what we're talking about maybe we'll get into more podcasts and stuff what do we got this week we got some some new stuff right a couple of couple of things came out this week um I'm going to hit on the, the patch that's still in testing at the moment, um, but they did release information on it. Uh, they're going to do a slight Reaper buff along with basically an armor debuff. Um, that is going to affect quite a few heroes, but uh, if, if I'm not mistaken in reading the details of it, this seems like a direct attack on, on the GOATS comp. Am I, am I wrong in that? No, I think, I think this is absolutely Blizzard's reaction to the, the GOATS comp being so prevalent not even just in Overwatch League, but even if you're playing competitive matches, you're seeing three tank, three support pretty much run away with it. So I think what they looked at was how can we have an impact on GOATS without issuing some sort of blanket nerf or having to release a new player or something like that. So a slight hit to armor. So armor is not going to reduce quite as much damage coming in as it did before. So if you are running GOATS comp, Diva, Reinhardt, they take a hit and Brigitte's armor additions obviously take a hit. And then you're looking at Reaper and they're saying, okay, maybe his damage is okay, but if he could sustain in a fight a little bit longer, he'd be able to balance out the sustainment that a triple tank, triple support sees on a point. So they're not giving him, they're not making him overpowered in damage or anything, but they are allowing him to stay in the fight longer, build up ults probably a little bit more quickly. And um, I think that's going to have a big impact on GOATS. Sounds sounds like it will. Uh, it may not obviously make it go away, but what I do think it would do is balance it out to where there is uh, with Reaper. Obviously, you have a direct counter to the the heavy tank lineups because uh, he loves to to be in close in fights and deal heavy damage, and that's what he does. He's I mean he's technically wielding two hand shotguns. Those will that'll make him obviously, like you said, able to sustain and be in those positions to be close enough to deal out the damage he's meant to deal. Because um, I do think he does quite a bit of damage when he's in close. 
So if they were going to try to buff him, I think that would have been a mistake. So this is probably the right decision in just making him have a more sustainability in those moments uh, and attack those tankier lineups. So it's basically the counter to this lineup is already built in the game. We just had to tweak it a little bit to make it uh, a more viable option, uh, in, especially in competitive play. Um, and then at the same rate, make it so these armor buffs aren't just you know taking over the game. They're still going to be functional. They're still going to be useful. You're still going to see moments where... These are still important uh, compositions to run, but at the end of the day, you can still defeat them with, you know, your standard, uh, your standard DPS heroes, your projectiles, your hit scans, whatever it may be. They're not going to be indestructible, so to speak, with all of the support going around, all the armor, and then all of their natural health pool that the tanks do have. So I think it's a, a solid change. I'm actually really impressed that they caught on to this early enough and are not going to let it kind of run away from them. Yeah, and I think obviously one thing they want to see in Overwatch League is hero diversity, right? So you don't want to... It's not very fun after a while to see 3 strength, 3 support take on the anti-goats comp, which is generally assumed to be Doomfist Sombra. And you don't want to be just seeing that match after match after match. So I think what they're doing here and what they actually do with a lot of their games is just try to make sure that every hero has a place, every hero is viable, and that there aren't too many. We're always going to run this composition. Um, and actually I was watching Jane, the coach for Team Canada through the Overwatch World Cup. He was breaking down some of the World Cup matches and he was talking about how in Overwatch League coming up this season, we may actually see picks and counter picks actually staying in spawn until they feel like they have a pick that counters everything. So could be some interesting new compositions coming out just as you know, hey, we need to counterpick this. Oh, we need to counterpick that rather than picking these entire compositions. Yeah, I think what you're talking about with the, the character diversity is actually an important thing for the health of a game in general. I know you and I have played some games in the past that get stale after a while. Uh, you know, you see the same people, you have the same abilities, nothing really changes. You know, this is what we do, this is what they do, go. It's just, you know, you have whatever you have, we have whatever we have, and can we beat you with what we have? Probably not not big owl news, but I think a lot of people are tracking that there's definitely some turmoil going on in Blizzard, which obviously then has an impact on an impact on Overwatch League. Actually, going further back, they actually canceled their entire uh, Heroes of the Storm esports division, so they're just going to rely on third parties to pick up that uh, slack there. Moving fo- moving from that point forward, several executives have left. Many of their chief designers have left. And then we have the news come out the other day that Bungie, which had actually bought into Blizzard Activision, they own Destiny. Uh, they actually split and are taking Destiny with them. So Bungie said, I've had enough of Activision and we're going to take our property and we're going to develop it on our own and then maybe try and branch out a little bit and do some do some more games, do some different games. So I think just kind of this is overall Blizzard, Activision, you know, what's kind of next for Overwatch League. Overwatch League's inaugural season was generally seen as an overwhelming success. If Activision's not happy with it, what kind of say do they have in it? And then Blizzard's obviously rotating a lot of executives and things like that. A lot of people are saying decisions are being driven almost entirely by the financial sector of the of the company, much less the game design, esports, those kinds of things. So interesting bit of news, I think. Certainly something to keep an eye on. Turnover is usually not a good thing um, in any company. Uh, you do like to see that consistency, that that's, 
I mean, you want to see those higher ups remain the same for a number, a number of years um, and then just retire before you have some sort of real turnover. But for people kind of just be walking away, it's it's slightly concerning, certainly something for everybody to keep their eye on for the time being. Um, but I do believe the success of Overwatch League will will stabilize everything in the end. All right. That does it for the news. Now we're moving on to the divisions. We're going to kick it off with the Pacific Division which is actually kind of the tougher division to do, in my opinion. They have seen a lot of expansion, especially in the Southeast Asian, China, um, Hong Kong, Shanghai markets. Um, so this was kind of, a, you know, from my perspective, a little bit more difficult of a division to look at, but um, potentially maybe one of the easier because there's a lot of question marks. Definitely a lot of question marks. Um, I mean, each... Each uh, division got four new teams, but I think there's so much unknown about the uh, the Asian teams that have been joined in that it's it's going to make it a very much a, a wait and see approach for a lot of people on what to expect from some of these teams. Absolutely. So, all right, and we're going to kick it off talking about the Chengdu Hunters, hailing from an interior region of China. The team is owned by Huya Inc. They basically own and operate much of the live streaming live streaming platforms in China. So essentially roughly equivalent to Twitch or this company also owns the esports organization Royal Never Give Up, who are more known for League of Legends, but these guys are no strangers to esports teams. So just to run down the roster, we have Evital running support, Ameng on tank, Elsa also tanking, Late Young a tank, Gary playing support, Yang Xiao Lung playing what looked to be predominantly hit scan DPS. Um, we have Kaio on support and Jinmu playing the other DPS. Interesting note when I was looking at this roster, they actually have one of the smaller rosters. They don't have a lot of depth. Um, it looks like they kind of got to the minimum that they had to be at for uh, to be a part of the league. And then they haven't really made too many additions since. This is predominantly a Chinese roster. And it all almost exclusively hails from Overwatch contenders teams playing from um, either China or South Korea. So we saw a few of the players from Chengdu play in Overwatch World Cup. Um, Evital was playing support, predominantly like Lucio, occasionally some Zen. We also saw Late Young play a lot of D.Va for the Chinese team. Uh, this was a Chinese team that saw pretty good success in the early rounds of, of World Cup. They actually made it to the finals, uh, took on South Korea, but then that match really wasn't fair at all. Um, they got stomped. They looked like just genuinely did not have an answer. They tried to run a lot of unorthodox compositions, so it's hard to say, oh, EV Tall or Late Young weren't successful tanks or supports because they were running these kind of odd compositions against a Korean team that had a lot of experience in inaugural season, was able to run compositions that they were very comfortable with and just kind of looked overall much more comfortable in the game. And China really just didn't have an answer. Yeah, and no surprise that uh, this team's basically going to be comprised of a lot of Southeast Asian players. They're obviously going to try to run that market um, with the rest of the teams that are out there. The Overwatch is going for an international game, obviously. It's always been an international game. Um, but they're trying to increase their presence in those international markets. I'm going to be interested to see how they decide to 
combine some of the Chinese and South Korean players. Um, and this is going to be a theme across a lot of those teams since most of them did pull from the same areas with their players. But, you know, how are you going to bridge that language gap? They aren't the same languages, even though they're both Asian languages. And we saw some of the teams last year struggle with communication when they were trying to mesh, you know, different languages, even just among uh, English, uh, European languages. You know, some of the people are Swedish. Um, and then you have the, the people who speak Korean and some that speak Chinese. There's just so it's a diverse number of languages across the entire Overwatch League. And then when you don't have that communication that flows in game, it makes it very difficult to succeed. So that's something that I certainly keep an eye on with all of these teams that are, are new, um, but also the ones that are, are trying to mesh a lot of languages. In taking a look at the Chengdu Hunters schedule, it looks fairly balanced. A good mix of expansion teams and uh, season one experience teams. I think if I had to call out anything in their schedule, Stage 4 looks particularly grueling for them. So they'll kick off Stage 4, taking on Fusion and Boston Uprising. Then uh, they'll go straight over to the Los Angeles Gladiators. Then they'll be taking on the New York Excelsior. That's a, I mean, if, if teams kind of stay the same, I mean, Stage 4, a lot of things are going to change between now and then. Those, those teams experienced a lot of success in the inaugural season. If things stay the same, that's going to be a really grueling schedule, you know, bang right off the bat, stage four. So if they are coming into stage four, looking and hoping to make a push, that's going to be a really grueling first four games to try and make that push through. Yeah, well, you're not lying. That stage four start is, uh, is absolutely brutal. Um, if, if those teams continue the trend that they played with all last year, I mean, you're looking at potentially starting that that stage 0-4 and you're only getting seven total matches that stage, like, I mean, you're not going to make the stage playoffs unless you pick off a couple of those teams. If you're in the, the playoffs chase for one of those top uh, six seeds, man, you better have some some credit build up from the first three stages because that, yeah. that is not comfortable. I would not feel good going into that those last uh, those like last stage trying to hold on for dear life, basically, with uh, knowing what's sitting in front of you. Um, but I think even more intriguing for me personally, since we don't know a lot about these teams, we haven't seen them play together, is their early season schedule for me. I'm actually interested in that stage one first three weeks because they're actually going to get some some they're going to get some decent competition. They're going to get to match up against another expansion team. They're going to get a Florida Mayhem team that was up and down, mostly down, but I think they're they're not bad. Um, and then they're going to get to play Shanghai in week three of stage one. And I think that's going to be your indicator for what to expect from them personally. Because if they can't beat up on some of these teams and at least go two and two for the first three weeks, I think we'll know what to expect um, the rest of the way, obviously. Because the teams they play on the back end are, of stage one are supposed to be pretty decent um, or at least competitive for the playoff spots. So I would pay attention very closely to those first four matches in the first three weeks to see how they play, how they look. You know, are they at least being competitive are they getting blown out are they winning you know everything that goes into each match just i would pay attention to that uh myself just so i knew what i was going to get later down the line because like you said that stage four is, is not going to be fun all right so let's see continuing here in alphabetical order we're gonna we're gonna do the dallas fuel next so dallas uh was owned is, is owned by team envy which is a parent company of envy gaming um the core of their roster last year obviously was from Team Envy, which won the uh, Contenders North America in 2017, going into the inaugural season. Obviously, Season 1 did not go the way they expected. 
Um, a lot of a lot of people, including myself, I think including you, Mark, had some seriously high hopes for this Dallas roster, knowing who they had, where they came from, how they competed in contenders, and then even even so much as how they competed in in week one, game one for them. Basically, they lost a tough match, but it, they lost it two one to Seoul. But I mean, they were good in in that matchup in every round they won the first map uh lost the second two and then unfortunately only could manage a tie on the fourth fourth map so they couldn't force a uh, a fifth map but i mean they went to five they went to six and five on uh temple of anubis which was map two uh and they got out to a great start on that map i mean they had like six minutes and 30 seconds 15 seconds something like that in the bank after capping both points on anubis on their first go around, uh, nobody expected what happened after that. They had turmoil. They had turnover. XQC did whatever you want to say XQC wanted to do. Uh, it was it was painful to watch. Honestly, he got fined. He was suspended. Eventually, it ended up in his release. Yeah. Um, and then you know they turn around a couple of weeks later and they fire their coach and release Rascal, who was a DPS player for them. Um, according to Dallas, I mean, he was basically just ignoring people in game, not trying to communicate, which was like we said, uh, communication is a big part of the game. So this was one of those teams trying to mesh a lot of different languages and they did struggle with that, but we could not have foreseen that coming after the game one week one they had, honestly, I, I did not expect it. I don't think anybody else did personally, but it was, it was a rough season one for them to say the least. Yeah, you hate to see it, right? I think I, I certainly had high hopes for the team. I think, by and large, they grabbed together a team that was probably one of the more well-known teams for North American followers of any contenders teams, streamers, things like that. I mean, obviously, you put Seagull, XQC onto the same roster. That's going to grab a lot of the Twitch crowd, that kind of stuff. And I kind of got into Overwatch originally watching Seagull streams, so... I was following this team. I was like, oh, man, good Envy roster coming through, that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, then to kind of watch it all certainly fall apart um, as it went through the season. Uh, As you mentioned, Rascal not really communicating. I think XQC also had communication issues and I think was also kind of caught in in a leadership battle. I don't have any confirmation of that, but there's a pretty telling point about halfway through this halfway through the season where they just lose a they lose a map. Mickey kind of takes leadership and uh, it, he kind of overrides XQC. He looks like he's very obviously yelling into the comms. So whoever knows whatever happened internally is what happened internally. We don't get a lot of a view into that. Yeah, definitely not a good not a great start for a team that I think a lot of people had really high ups for. No, not a good start at all. Like here, I'll, let me run you down their first three stages here: three and seven, two and eight, one and nine. They bottomed out in stage three. That was, a, I think, around the time they ended up firing. I could be wrong. I think, I think it was the time they fired their head coach. It was after stage three or right around the the middle of stage three, somewhere in there. But more importantly, let's 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 review the teams that they beat in those three stages. Okay, here's the list of all the teams they beat through three stages: San Francisco, Shanghai. LA Gladiators, and they beat the Gladiators twice. How? I do not know. They actually seem to have, yeah, they had the Gladiators numbers. I don't know what it was. They seem to just be able to conquer the Gladiators. Yeah. They got all that mess cleared out. They brought in Arrow to, to coach their team going into Stage 4. Um, they had that addition of Bridget uh, into the meta, and they turned it on in Stage 4, to say the least. They finished that stage 6-4, and four, while 6-4 and four doesn't sound overly impressive when you're talking about going from 1-9 and nine the prior stage to 6-4 and, and making the stage playoffs. 
there's something to be said about that. And not only did they finish six and four, here's the list of teams they beat in stage four. Shanghai, Boston, Philly, London, Florida, and the LA Valiant. That those are four playoff teams from the season from last season. Four that they pull they picked off in stage four. And these were not teams that were playing poorly. These were not teams that, you know, were having rough goes of it that day. They actually just outplayed them in those matches. So they certainly got things put back together late in the season to give us again more hope going into this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so hopefully that that momentum continues. And I, I'm intrigued to see if they can they can do that, replicate the success they had in in stage four. Even if it comes out to be five and five, six and four, that's fine. You know, just something's mm-hmm. better than the one and nine, two and eight that we saw where it wasn't even matches. We were just like, can we get past this match and get to the next one? Because we already knew the end result. Yeah, I definitely remember watching that last that last minute push, um, the stage four push, and just being like, wow, this is actually a team now. That's something that I hadn't seen through the first three stages where they were just kind of making individually brilliant plays, but as a team really screwing up. So uh, Mickey would have a great play. AKM would have a great play. Siegel would have a great play, something like that. And you're like, okay, they're going to feed off this and they're going to do something with it. And then it was just like, no, that individual play just happened. And then they didn't step on the card. They didn't take over a point or they just really or they wasted an alt right after that. So um, I actually think firing the coach was actually was actually a really big move for them because I really felt like, I mean, a part of it was coaching. A part of it was, you know, a, a good part of a team takes the momentum of a really good, potentially even individual play, rallies the team behind it, and then starts making smart decision after smart decision following that. You know, and what we were seeing was fantastic play and then just head scratching, what are we doing as a team playing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> any any sport, it's all about minimizing mistakes. You can have great, spectacular moments, but you have to minimize your mistakes. And they would have some spectacular plays some just consistent, you know, this is what you're supposed to do type plays, followed up by just a handful in in, a, in this kind of game, a handful in a short period of time might as well be a million mistakes, you know, just compounded on top of each other to the point of somebody would go in when they shouldn't have, and then they end up getting staggered. Now they're further behind where they should have been. It just was one thing after the other. So uh, firing the coach at that time seemed like the right move. Obviously, I believe it turned out to be the right move when you look at the results um, of stage four. So... Um, I have hope for them going into this season. Uh, do I expect them to make the playoffs personally? Nah, I think they'll compete for it, absolutely. And they should definitely be in that 7-12 to 12 play-in tournament at the very least uh, if everything goes the way it should for them. Just quickly, here are some of the things that they uh, – the, some of the player moves they had happen this offseason. So uh, Siegel actually retired. He went back to, I believe, streaming, correct? Yeah, he's full-time streaming. Yeah, so um, obviously he was one of the more outspoken ones about the burnout, the schedule, uh, and how much he had to, had to do. So he, he retired from, from gaming, or professional gaming, I should say. Um, they released Chips, who was one of their primary supports. They did not re-sign him. And then Coco, uh, one, of the, uh, one of their tanks, main players, I think, from their core roster from Envy, if I remember correctly, um, he actually transitioned to an assistant coach role. So they lost three people at the end of the season. Nothing, nothing too alarming there. Um, Siegel, I think, will be missed by fans, but obviously he's very happy in his, his streaming career um and i'm sure he'll have plenty of people watching him no matter what um but here's the roster that they're left with now um after some additions and we'll talk about those here quickly harry hook's still around he's uh, one of their main supports usually plays mercy or lucio 
They have Unko, another support, primarily plays Zenyatta. He's basically their only Zenyatta player on their roster. Obviously, other people can play him, but he's going to be on. He's going to be in the matches to play Zenyatta. Basically, um, he was acquired actually last year mid-season. They actually traded away Custa to the Valiant, brought in Unko in that trade. They acquired Closer, another support from London this offseason. Uh, he is another Mercy Lucio player. I'm hoping between him and Harry Hook, one of them will play a little more Moira this year because I think she's useful in a lot of places. Um, I don't really think they had somebody who could had a large enough hero pool as a support to, to break away from that Mercy's and Yada com- combination, which I think kind of hurt them a little bit. Um, but hopefully they branch out a little more this year. On their DPS line, I'm actually pretty excited about their DPS line, to be perfectly honest. AKM, Taimu, Zachary, and Effect. Uh, AKM brought in midseason last year. He was signed after the release of Rascal. He is a, I would consider him a Soldier 76 main, even though his playtime uh, in Overwatch League has been dominated more so by, by Widow. But he's very much a hit scan DPS. He did show some promise on some other heroes. He played some Farah here and there, but he he was a really good soldier, honestly. I remember watching him when he joined and watching him in those matches, even though they weren't playing well. You could see the potential that he had and how comfortable he was playing soldier, that it was it was actually quite quite interesting to watch him do that. Taimu, um, what can be said, the guy basically plays everything. He played some tank last year. He played yeah. some support. He played... Uh, some DPS. Uh, this year, he's supposed to be a DPS player. I would assume he'd play a lot of Widow. And then Zachary, who was acquired from Philly's university team, actually, the, the Fusion University team. He oh, okay. played in the North American Contenders. Yep, they acquired him via what they call transfer. Um, so it's not really a trade or anything. It's not a free agent, obviously. But uh, he was acquired from them. He's going to play more of a flex DPS role. I think he's got a, a deep enough hero pool to give them some more flexibility with their DPS. Cause I think something that hamstring hamstrung them last year is they really didn't play many projectile DPS heroes. If you remember, it was basically widow tracer and that was kind of the end of the line every now and then again with AKM coming in, you saw some soldier 76, but I mean, how often did you see them play Junkrat unless sequel was in the, in the game? How often did you see them say Hanzo unless sequel was in the game? You know? Yeah, not he much was, until the end, definitely. Right. He was like their only one, but because of all the turmoil, he ended up having to play some off-tank for a little while. So they basically had hit-scan heroes only. It was just one of those things. So this should give them a little more flexibility. Uh, and then Effect, he's going to be their tracer. It's what he does. And he's darn good at it. He's very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> very, very good at it. Uh, their tank line... Um, bringing back two from last year, OGE and Mickey. Um, OGE is going to play their main tank role. Uh, he's going to be play their Reinhardt, their Winston, their Orisa if they choose to use one. Um, OGE usually sticks to Reinhardt and Winston, though. Um, and he's very good at Reinhardt. Um, it's actually, I think, his best hero, personally. Mm-hmm. But if he can be a little more solid in that role, I think that'll open up a little more space for the rest of the roster. Um, Mickey, uh, fan favorite. What can be said about Mickey? Everybody loves the guy. Even when the team was playing poorly, it's all you could talk about was Mickey. That's what does it for everybody. It's the hair, it's the smile. <laughs> he always seems to be having fun, even in yeah. serious moments. So uh, he's probably going to stick, again, to their off-tank role. You're probably primarily going to see him play D.Va, but he will flex uh, onto Bridget and a couple other heroes if necessary. Um, if they're going to run a Bridget comp, he's going to play Bridget for them. He was so good in that role last year in Stage 4. I mean, you watched him play it, and you felt like the hero was built for him, basically. Uh, he actually uh, won the inaugural Dennis Internet Hulk Halalka? How, how do you pronounce his last name? I've Hulka. never actually heard it pronounced. Yeah, Halalka. Okay, he actually won that award though, which <laughs> uh, it goes to the most positive impact on the community. So that tells you the kind of person Mickey actually is. 
Yeah, that um, was a uh, Dennis was a guy who was really heavily involved in in esports and bringing it uh, bringing around esports and trying to promote esports. And he actually ended up passing away. I think it was like November of 2017. Um, yeah. Sometime around then. I think the bigger thing, though, with Mickey winning the award is that he was actually a part of that Team Envy roster and playing with these guys in Overwatch. So it was kind of a big deal to see one of the the Dallas Fuel members to win that award, named after Dennis, obviously. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, everybody loves Mickey, including the community, obviously. (laughs) Um, And then their their new uh, new tank that they signed is Rick. He was acquired uh, by transfer from Team... I'm going to say Giganti, honestly. I'm not really sure how it's pronounced. That's a good, that's a good um, take. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw the hard J sound on the GI combination <laughs> there. Yeah. Um, but that's from the EU contenders. He's going to play a little flex tank, a little off tank. Um, he's just he's going to give them a little more flexibility with Mickey um, if they want to obviously sub somebody else out, still run two tanks, and let Mickey run Bridget. They can still have another tank come in and uh, maintain their – their status there with uh, two solid tanks, the main tank and the off tank, they're not going to have to sacrifice to run Bridget, basically. They can drop out another support or a DPS, whatever they choose to actually do. But I think he'll give them a little more flexibility with who they run out there, the type of compositions they can run. By far, an off tank specialist, top to bottom. So that's that's their new roster. Um, that's who they have to, to work with this year. Like I said, I have some some hope for them. And they certainly showed a lot of strong promise from the end of last season. Yeah, definitely. And something I feel like I'm noticing with a lot of rosters now is having depth at all three positions. My perception of the inaugural season was that there was a lot of depth and a lot of DPS. A lot of tank and support off players sat on the bench. And so what I'm seeing here and what I'm seeing rosters do is kind of fill in the depth in those off tank flexible positions because I think they're going to need to be they're going to need to have access to that depth for goats compositions, for dodes competitions, for anti goats. You need this flexibility to be able not to be stuck with, all right, two tanks, two supports, and then we're flexing some other stuff. It's You may have to be running three tanks, three supports that are good at what they do. Uh, just looking at the roster, what I'm seeing is they bring in the flex DPS, somebody who can kind of move around a little bit, and then they bring in that off tank, depth at that tank position. I felt like they already had pretty good support. They obviously wanted to bring in another starting support closer. Um from the London Spitfire, so I like their moves. I honestly do too. I think this is going to be a theme for a lot of teams, honestly, um, when it comes to their acquisitions from this offseason, is that, like you said, that flexibility. I think what you said about your observation from season one was spot on, honestly. Uh, a lot of teams were stuck in certain compositions because they were looking at their their teammates to their right and their left, and they go, who can play this? And everybody's like, uh, no one that's out here right now and you can't sub mid-match. You have to sub in between maps. So it, it gets tough and I think they need that on each roster. I mean, you talk about in other sports, you love having players that are multi-dimensional in football, basketball, soccer. You want people that can do everything and that's what's going to end up probably being needed from a lot of these players in, in Overwatch League is people that can flex onto different heroes. You're going to have your main tanks and you're going to have your people who are going to be stuck in certain heroes, but we need... We need players who have deeper hero pools and can do things as needed when we have to go counter something that another team is doing. It's as simple as that. So I think this is going to be a trend, basically. So taking a look at the Dallas Fuel's schedule, I think they've got a pretty good setup in Stage 1 here. Um, they're going to be able to hopefully finish at no worse than 3-4, and 4-3, four, four and three, somewhere in that area. Um, if, you, if you 
get what you're expecting from a lot of teams. So they actually get to play Shanghai twice in stage one, which is surprising for me. I'm not sure who did the scheduling, obviously. I can't say I'm a fan of playing the same team twice in back-to-back weeks, nonetheless, in a stage with this many teams available to choose from. I guess they just couldn't work out getting everybody to play everybody twice or something, whatever their specifics were for scheduling. Yeah, I but if Chengdu actually, don't they actually play Chengdu twice back-to-back? Somewhere? They do. Chengdu, they play yeah. twice in Stage 3 in back-to-back weeks. So, again, uh, I'm not really sure what the the setup was for that, but they get to do that. You're going to see the same team twice. So, I mean, it, it's kind of a twofold thing. You have an opportunity to win back-to-back matches in two weeks, um, but at the same rate, the other team basically does not have to re-scout at all. You know, you say, okay, what did happen last match? Let's change this up for this match and let's go at it again. It's kind of like playing teams in back-to-back weeks uh, in the NFL at a certain level, especially going from the end of the regular season into the playoffs. You know, a lot of times that team that lost the first one ends up winning the second one because they had better film and they were more prepared because they had an experience of playing that team. So uh, who knows? But I-, I think stage one sets up good for them. To, to carry on their momentum. A couple of tough matchups to start, obviously, with Seoul and Philadelphia. Obviously, Seoul wasn't what we expected all of season one, but we fully know they're capable of being a top-tier team. So I'll be interested to certainly watch that matchup in, in week one. Um, and then they finish stage one playing Boston. But they they have some, some serious potential to, to get out of the gate strong uh, in season two, in my opinion, with what they have in front of them. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think by stage three, we'll have a much better idea of a lot of what these expansion teams are. And they actually have a kind of an expansion team gauntlet in there. They do Justice, they do the Hunters twice, and they also have the Vancouver Titans and the Hangzhou Sparks. So kind of a gauntlet for them of expansion team. Yeah, that, that stage three is bookended by the Gladiators on the front and the Excelsior on the back. So you certainly want to take advantage if the expansion teams are, are you know still kind of figuring things out because you know they lack any sort of overwatch league experience they've never been on these stages with you know the people watching so it'll be interested to see how how they fare but that's a good opportunity again for dallas to come out of the stage if if they can get off to a good start and keep keep the momentum going to to finish that another stage very well they have some other stages where you kind of look at it and you go "Mm, not sure this one's going to go so well this one should go well but all in all i think their schedule is fairly favorable i really do feel like they're going to be right there competing for that that's five, six seed probably. That way they don't have to be in the play-in tournament, but that's just how it looks right now without knowing how these expansion teams are going to fare. So you're saying there's a chance? Oh yeah, definitely saying there's a chance. And with that play-in tournament, there's more of a chance. (laughs) (laughs) And next we're going to be looking at the Guangzhou Charge, another expansion team. This city is located kind of in the southern coastal area of China, not very far away from Hong Kong. Um, It's owned by the Nanking Group. It's just a financial and entertainment conglomerate. But they do have a Chinese basketball team. So kind of in a little bit of contrast to Chengdu, which took almost exclusively Chinese players to fulfill their roster, Guangzhou took a multinational group. Um, so there's actually an American player, Nero, and then there's a UK player, Kib. So we talked about communication issues. So there's several Chinese players, several Korean players. So... We did talk about communication issues, and so it'll be interesting to see if some of the other teams were able to kind of give them some lessons learned. These guys are able to implement some of the some of the experience from season one teams and making comms available for everyone, or if this is if this is going to be a struggle for them as well. Absolutely, communication, in my opinion, is 
the most important thing in any team. And I'm talking your, your office team, <laughs> you know, your sports team, your, your family team, it, it, communication is so imperative in all those aspects because it makes sure that everybody's on the same page. Everybody understand each other. Everybody knows what to expect. It, it makes a, a large difference. So getting everybody to be able to communicate effectively, clearly, um, is going to be a very important again for all of the teams, but obviously these teams that are trying to blend so many, so many players who speak so many different languages. So as far as their players go by and large, picked mostly out of overwatch contenders. They did end up acquiring one player from the Philadelphia fusion Hotba, who actually had a decently strong showing as a tank in Philadelphia fusions finals playoff um, against the London Spitfire. So that was kind of, I think some people were, kind of questioning as to why Hoppa was traded. We don't actually know what Guangzhou gave back to the Fusion in return. Those details never came to light. So their overall roster, uh, Rise playing support, Shu on support, Rio the tank. We have Nero uh, playing damage, Happy also on damage, Kib on damage, Only Wish playing support, Hotbone tank, Eileen playing damage and Chara playing support. Really good depth across, in terms of just players, across um, each of the roles. Kib, we actually got a pretty good chance to see in the Overwatch World Cup uh, playing for the United Kingdom. Not Didn't provide a whole lot of clarity as to what he would be playing. He flexed into almost every role. He played Brigida, he was playing Doomfist, he was playing off tank, so not entirely sure where he's going to fit into the roster, but actually has some pretty good plays in a couple places you're like oh kib is the reason they won that fight so a player that definitely is going to have some impact on the squad now this year in season two there is no preseason so we're not really going to have a chance to see a lot of these expansion teams before we get into the to regular season however guangzhou actually took on the seoul dynasty it's called the pacific challenge and they actually took the seoul dynasty to a 2-2 tie they actually took Li Jiang and Route 66 off Seoul. Certainly kind of an early look. I mean, it's hard to find videos of it, and so it's hard to tell how serious either team was taking it. But it'll be interesting seeing them take down Seoul, who was a pretty strong contender, um, certainly early in the season, in the inaugural season. So, I think there's going to be at least... This is probably hedging my bet a little too much, but I think it's going to be at least two to three that are going to surprise us out of the eight expansion teams that maybe we weren't expecting to be as strong competitively. Um, that will be. Uh, will they make the playoffs? Will you know a bunch of expansion teams make the playoffs? Who knows? You really won't know until you start seeing them actually play. But if you're asking me, I think these expansion teams should all all be fighting for that seven to twelve range and trying to at least make that play in in their first year in the league. As far as their schedule goes, um, nothing sticks out as, you know, oh, this is this is crazy or not crazy. Kind of in a, it seems to be a, a running theme that stage four, again, assuming that teams from the inaugural season that were successful will retain that success, which is unlikely that they all will, kind of have a gauntlet at the end here for the charge. They'll see the Fusion, the Uprising, Spitfire, Dynasty, and Excelsior, as a, as a gauntlet to run their stage four. And they'll actually see fuel um, right before the playoffs. So stage four for them, again, kind of looking like, oh, here's a big challenge. So they either, they either want to have a big buffer coming into that or 
have a lot of have a lot of success, have a lot of unexpected success to kind of make a playoff push. Yeah, stage four, man. They did them no favors. <laughs> You're talking about Philly, Boston, London, Seoul, New York, and a surging from last season Dallas Fuel team. Ah. I don't like that for them personally. Obviously, we have to see how the season plays out. But if you're asking me as of right now, that is not pretty. Not and for anyone, honestly. Um, I, I do like their stage two setup. Um, they've got San Francisco twice. They've got Hangzhou. They've got Houston on the back end of that. Um, but then they've got two, two expansion teams with Paris and Atlanta. I, I think currently the toughest competition in that stage is going to be the Gladiators in week two. Um, but that's certainly a good opportunity for them to try to get into a stage playoffs. If you're asking me, there's there's an opportunity there to go four and three, five and two, I would say easily. But obviously, it all remains to be seen. But my goodness, stage four, I I don't envy them for that. My gosh. Yeah, how do you feel being an expansion team? You know, you you announce your team, you announce your branding, you get all your colors right, you start announcing your players, scheduling comes out. And you just kind of sit back and look at stage four. <laughs> you have to look at stage four. You have to look at that and go, what did we do to deserve this? <laughs> that one's so brutal compared to the ones we've looked at thus far. I mean, the other ones are tough. Don't get me wrong. But that was that's one, two, three, four playoff teams from last year. Stage four playoff team in Dallas and a team that just underperformed in Seoul. And my gosh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be fixated on this for a while. Obviously, hopefully, as we get closer to stage four, that doesn't look quite as daunting for them. But um, if those teams continue to play, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be ready to talk about that come stage four for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as we saw in in season one, so much can change between stage one and stage four. Not just even on the teams, but even in the game itself. Uh, there are new characters, characters that get their kit completely revamped. So I mean, it it could be huge. You never know. Maybe a patch comes out, really plays into what the Chargers are doing at the time, and they're able to make a run. But yeah, it's just looking at it and compared to last year, uh, I'm I'm not envious of that stage four. Definitely not. Hopefully, hopefully they show it well in stage one, and we get a better idea for what they're going to be capable of. Because we would love nothing more than all these matches to be extremely competitive. Obviously. All right, so we're going to move on now. We're going to go to a, a fan favorite team, I would say, only because of their color choices. Um, <laughs> it seems to be a popular pick with a lot of people. Why? I, I don't quite understand it. Like I said, I'm, I'm afraid of what my eyes are about to have to look at as teams are playing and you get some of these vibrant uh, oranges and greens and blues and then you come up to the, the Hangzhou Spark and you get, oh, I apologize, but Pepto-Bismol Pink. That, that's... Pepto-Bismol pink. You ain't like, wrong. You ain't I, lying. Like, I'm not trying to hate on it, but that's the color they chose. Um, and then obviously they went with my least favorite color of all time as their secondary color. So uh, light blue and I do not get along for any any stretch of the imagination length of time. Blue. Yeah, we're not going to discuss that. We're just going to move on from that quickly. They're, they're pink. Um, yes, they're pink. They're pink for all intents and purposes for us. Uh, anyway, so uh, they're actually located on the east coast of China, uh, which is they're slightly southwest of Shanghai. Uh, they're owned by a company called Billy Billy is what I'm going to pronounce them as. It's how it's spelled. They're an online entertainment company in China. Uh, their roster currently is uh, made up of mostly Korea talent from contenders and Chinese contenders talent. Um, they actually have a good mix of two two teams. Um, four of their 
players are from X6 Gaming and three are from Team 7. And uh, they have, I think, one or two others filtered in there. But that is the bulk of their roster. So they're actually kind of combining two teams. So there is at least some chemistry to build off of for certain players. Um, and like, we, like we've stated before with most of the the expansion teams, um, at least from the specific division, the ones located in Southeast Asia, they're going to have to bridge a language gap for sure um, between Korean and Chinese. Going to be going to be a hot topic throughout all of season two, in my opinion. So let's run down their roster really quick. So for their supports, they've got IDK, Revenge, and I'm going to say Bebe, as I haven't heard it pronounced yet. Hey, Bebe. Uh, it could be BB, could be Bebe. I just haven't heard it pronounced yet. Um, those are going to be their their three supports. Let's see, IDK, he is going to be a strong Lucio player, um, which should work well with the GOATS meta, because that's one of the primary supports in that in that composition. Revenge was one of those Team 7 members. Uh, he is probably going to flex more of his support heroes, but he's best known for his Ana play and his Zenyatta play. Bebe is a former X6 member. Um, he's also a very strong Zenyatta, so I would assume if they have Bebe and Revenge in at the same time, Bebe would play Zenyatta, and Revenge would flex onto something else. But overall, their supports are, are going to be strong. Like I said, they, they have their Lucio play, they have their flex support, and they've got their Zenyatta ready to go. So they're, they're looking like a, a strong candidate to run some goats, at least early on, with the supports they have chosen to run out here. Yeah, something I've been seeing in the, in the teams, in the supports that they're bringing on, is that most of the supports seem to be known for their Anna and Zenyatta. So... Anna not particularly known for goats. She's known a lot for anti goats because that grenade is so strong to disable all those AOE heals coming in. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see who kind of gets into those Brigida Moira roles. I mean, Moira can be really effective in goats. She does have some AOE healing capability, and obviously her ultimate is a really strong, at least line heal. So interesting to see how some of these support how they how these teams flex some of their Anna's and Yada players into Moira Brigida roles definitely it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out I will also add that uh Bebe is probably going to play Zenyatta um more along the lines of what we've kind of grown accustomed to from from Jonak and Jaehong at this point uh he loves to dish out that DPS when he plays Zenyatta so he's going to be somebody to watch to see if he he falls into that succession of DPS support players on Zenyatta, um, especially out of the Southeast Asia region. Verified headhunters. Yeah, that's not a joke, man. Not a joke. So onto their DPS here, though. They've got Bayzee, Adora, and Crystal. Bayzee is off of Team 7. Adora is also off of Team 7. Crystal was not off of either of those teams. Um, so that's just one of those players they, they pulled to fill in their roster. However, Bayzee is going to be their hitscan specialist. He's probably going to play Widow when he's in. He's going to be their primary Widow, I would assume, um, every time he steps steps into the, the arena. Adora is going to is going to be the best Hanzo on their team. This is this is the theme though I want you to get from their DPS players is they have a very very deep hero pool when it comes to DPS. These guys can basically all flex onto a lot of heroes DPS-wise, so they're not going to be hamstrung into saying, okay, just because I'm, I'm a hit, can, hit scan specialist doesn't mean I can't play Farah or Junkrat or Hanzo or whatever this team may need at a specific time. It's, it's going to be interesting to watch, and I think that's one of the strengths of this roster currently is their flexibility with heroes and players. You can throw out your two, whatever two DPS players you decide to play in a match, throw them out there. And they can basically adjust to whatever they need to adjust to in order to compete with the team they're playing against. It's it's going to be a theme for them uh, throughout all of season two, 
And it's certainly something that I'm interested in, in seeing play out. I will add that I forgot about Godsby. They actually have four DPS players. I didn't read far enough down here. But Godsby is another DPS player. He was a member of uh, X6. He's going to be more of a flex DPS. But like I said, that's a theme throughout their DPS players. Uh, you just have so much depth in those in those hero pools that it makes it tough to prepare as an opposing team. So what you're going to end up seeing sometimes not isn't teams that are going to go into a match playing against them are not going to know what you're probably going to play just by who you started for that map. Yeah, okay. You're, you're basically going to have to go in with your game plan and have to adjust to what they start to do. So that's certainly something that I think will become more of a trend. Like I said, this is some, a theme throughout a lot of teams going into Season 2, but I think it's going to be a trend where people are going to you know, come out, see what you've done as far as your your lineup, especially when you're on attack and you have a spawn advantage at that point and you don't have to really go anywhere. You can wait to see what the other team does before you actually walk out of spawn, you can switch heroes at that last second, you know? Yeah. This is going to be things that teams like this can do, like, regularly, and it's going to be fun to see. Yeah, so arguably, we saw yeah. Crystal, and you'll be talking about him in a second, Gushway, um, play on the Chinese World Cup team, and they were actually kind of known for attempt, well, maybe not attempting to, but they weren't known for sticking within the meta. They actually tried to not run 3-3, three, three, uh, three support, 3-tank, three and things like that. And it actually threw a lot of people for a loop. The ability to flex into a lot of different roles in a lot of different places gives this team the ability to run compositions that people aren't looking for, are not expecting. So, yeah, we could be seeing some different stuff from uh, from the Spark. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of different things from the Spark um, just in doing the research and reviewing their roster. Um, I would expect some unorthodox things to happen for them. They're actually... Uh, one of the teams that I'm probably going to be keeping my eye on the closest as far as the expansion teams go, because I'm intrigued to see what they pull off with the flexibility that they do have. Um, but like you said, moving on to the tanks here, uh, we've got Gushway, Rhea, and No Smite. Um, and Gushway, like you said, came onto the scene uh, predominantly uh, in Overwatch World Cup. Apparently for everybody who, who was able to watch that, got to see some incredible Winston plays. Uh, I unfortunately was not one of them. Um, but that's what he's known for. Um, he can he can turn a fight with Winston. He's very very aggressive at it as a tank, uh, and as we know from this past season, that that can work. An aggressive tank, somebody who can take a an opposing team's focus and then not die from it. Essentially, uh, it opens up a lot of space for your supports, for your DPS to do what they're supposed to do. When people have to worry about your tank and and trying to either get away from your tank or eliminate your tank from an area or, you know, trying to hold an, uh, a choke point, trying to hold a capture point, and you, you have a tank running around crazy, basically doing whatever he wants, it, it opens up so many other things for the rest of your roster and frees them up to to be effective, to deal out their damage, to use their their abilities um, that may be risky in certain areas, but not when, when you have a tank that can command the type of presence that that Gushue is going to command. Yeah, I definitely got an opportunity to watch some of that, uh, some of the finals match again. Probably not a fair comparison. South Korea really just dominated the match from start to finish, but his aggressiveness definitely resulted in some some good plays and maybe some not so good things where he was on an island alone without the support. The other two, Rhea is an X six member, as is No Smite. So. What you do have with all these different team combinations, uh, the two teams being meshed together, is you kind of have half of your front line, half of your back line uh, off of two different teams, but also speaking two different languages. 
So they are certainly going to have to bridge that gap quickly in order to get effective. But Rhea is going to play their flex tank is a very, very consistent player. Cap, it's it focused on, on that being the minimizing of mistakes. And like I said, in other sports, and especially in Overwatch, if you can minimize your mistakes, you have a very, very good chance of being successful. I'm, conf- I'm actually interested to see how they pair the, their tanks up because No Smite is a, is a strong Reinhardt. Gushue, like we said, is known for his Winston. And then Rhea can flex. So my assumption is that Rhea will stay, stay in in the starting lineup and Gushue and No Smite will kind of rotate which may work out best for them since uh, No Smite and Rhea are both former X6 members um, and Gushue is not. If they can find some sort of balance to where everybody has their, their spots, you know, we have a, a time and a place where Winston needs to be our primary tank. We have a time and a place where Ryan has to be our primary tank. Or if we decide to, to go for a GOATS lineup, you know, do we run all three um, with, the, with Rhea being able to flex? So I, I actually have... Some serious, serious enamorment with the depth of this roster and what they're going to be able to do from a lineup standpoint. Talent-wise, you know, I, I'm not going to speak because I haven't really seen them play yet, but their potential is very much there to be strong. So let's take a quick quick overview of their schedule. First of all, the pink. It's the offensive. Pink, it's, it's, it's so hard to look at. Like, I, <laughs> it's, It hurts the eyes at certain times, but... I don't see them having to double up anybody, so they at least got this schedule fixed. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say but, arguably their stage three looks like the past couple, the, the last couple of teams we were talking a lot about their stage four. No, no. Stage three is probably their toughest, toughest stage for sure. That's what you're trying to get at, and I understood what you meant. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think there's a lot of expectation of this Vancouver Titans team, personally. Okay. You're talking about playing Philly, Vancouver, Seoul, Dallas, and the Valiant all in Stage 3. Mm-hmm. That's that's certainly no cakewalk for them. Stage 1, they're going to get tested for sure. They're going to get tested. They're going to be able to show what they have and they're capable of doing. They're going to play on opening night, um, so everybody's going to get to see what they can and can't do immediately. Going to get identified um, real quick. Yes, absolutely. We're going to get to see what Shanghai can do against them in that, that opening night matchup. Um, and then they're going to play the Valiant, followed by Houston and London. So, you know, if they can come out strong and beat Shanghai, uh, I don't know who is and isn't expecting Shanghai to win that matchup. Uh, I expect it to be competitive because I expect Shanghai to be very much improved after uh, a rough first season. Those next three, you're going to know who this this Hangzhou Spark team is very fast. Mm-hmm. And then kind of a, you know, maybe not team-based wise, but even match-based wise, just a lighter stage four for them. Uh, first two weeks, they're only playing one match. Last week, they're only playing one match. So they have a little bit of a uh, New York, Dallas, uh, Los Angeles, Gladiators, Gauntlet in the middle there, but um, kind of a lighter schedule for them in stage four. Yeah, I'd say lighter. And if they're if they're as good as I think they could be, uh, especially if they develop by the by the end of the season, going into stage four, obviously, um, strong possibility they end up in in that stage four playoffs. Looking at that that schedule, um, obviously, we again we don't know what to expect for some of the expansion teams, but not having to go through that many playoff teams from last year, aka you only have to go through the Excelsior and Gladiators, you know, it, it gives you gives you hope looking at that schedule um, for stage four that you can you can make a run and get yourself off to. If you didn't have a good first three stages, you can you know end the season going on going out on a strong note and maybe content potentially 
that is what they need to ultimately have a chance to be in that playing tournament for that 7 through 12 range. Next up on the docket, we got the Los Angeles Gladiators, a uh, team owned by Stan and Josh Cranky, owners of several sports franchises and founders of KSE Esports. What do you say about the Gladiators other than shields up? Shields up, baby. So they actually had kind of an up. Uh, middle of the road performance through a lot of season one they ended stage one four and six stage two six four stage three six four um and then something happened for stage four and they ended up going nine and one and being the top seed heading into the stage four playoffs i was trying to look back and see what patches happened when and whether or not they kind of played into their hand they actually um had some puzzling losses throughout the season like stage one, they lose to the Fuel, who were not a good team at the time. And we mentioned this earlier, Fuel seemed to have a Gladiator's number. And then in stage four, they go nine and one, and they get the top seed. Now, for the stage playoffs, and during the inaugural season, if you're the top seed, you actually have the right to choose your opponent. Rather than doing what pretty much everyone else had done, which is choosing the worst record team, they actually chose a rival, Los Angeles Valiant, they actually got 3-2'd by the Valiant in the stage playoff opener. So maybe a stumble there, or maybe they did think they matched up the best against the Valiant, but it didn't work out for them in the end. No, it certainly didn't. Um, it was a puzzling decision for a lot of reasons, honestly. Maybe they just didn't like matching up against Dallas because they lost to him twice earlier in the season. Like, I mean, who knows? It, it really didn't make sense to anybody who was thinking, sitting here thinking, you know, do you want to play the Valiant or Excelsior? No, you don't want to play either of those teams. You want those two teams to beat up on each other, and then yeah. you only have to go through one of them. So it was certainly puzzling that they didn't choose Dallas. The only thing I can think of is that, like you said, Dallas just had their number. Even though the Gladiators had beaten them before, they just they simply had their number. It, yeah. It's like, what are you guys doing right now? This doesn't quite make any sense. I mean, you elected to play the, the second-place team in the stage, for crying out loud, who was also 9-1 and one with you. So... Yep. What was your plan there? Uh, who knows, really? Maybe they just wanted to make a statement. Maybe they just wanted to have an L.A. battle and guarantee the L.A. battle. Who knows? Uh, obviously, it cost them in the end, but it was their choice. They made it. Got to live with it. Absolutely. So then by virtue of that 9-1 and one performance in Stage 4 and um, at least pulling off 6-4 and four in those middle rounds, they actually end up making the cut for the, um, the grand finals, the playoffs. And then in kind of a strange move, they actually benched their main tank, uh, Fisher, um, who had come from the London Spitfire um, in an acquisition through the season. And they benched him for the finals, and they actually get 2-1 by the Spitfire in the opening round of the finals playoffs. Yeah, it's a, it was a, certainly a puzzling decision again you kind of wonder if maybe he didn't him the fissure himself didn't want to play against his former team i'm not saying that was the case or even if it was thought of um but it is something that's plausible at least but yeah. it doesn't make sense to take out what essentially is your your best tank your main tank and leave him on the bench for the playoffs it again another puzzling decision by the gladiators that may or may not have mattered to be perfectly honest london was that good you do wonder if Fisher could have made a difference and gotten you way more competitive in that series than you were or won you the, the match, honestly, because he's one of the better tanks in the league, honestly. Yeah, it was a huge acquisition to them uh, in the season because arguably tank play was kind of one of their weaknesses in that, that not-so-successful stage one. 
And then they pick him up from the Spitfire. He'd actually spent most of the time on the Spitfire bench. And, and he ended up playing really well for the Gladiators throughout the remainder of the season. So, yeah, it was a really odd move on their part. So, arguably, two kind of, I don't know, coaching or ownership stumbles kind of at the end there cost the Gladiators, I think, a chance to be maybe even in that finals because they did end up taking a game off the Spitfire. Um, they took King's Row. Yeah, I, I will never quite understand that decision um, with Fisher. I know we, we questioned it at the time. But again, like you got to be joking me. You're taking out the one of the league's top five players as a tank, you know. And if you have a strong tank, you have a strong chance to do a lot of different things. Absolutely. I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully they've learned from that uh, and can move forward from it. Obviously, but it was a mistake. I'm just gonna call it what it is. It was a mistake. Mistakes were made. Yes. So rundown on the roster: we got Surefour playing damage, Void on the tank, Roar tanking. Ripa playing support, Bishu playing tank, Shaz also on support, Decay and Hydration running more damage, and Big Goose playing support. Out of this roster, Surefour stands out big time. Um, Bishu actually stands out big time for me, and then Hydration. If you're asking me for, for what's going to stand out again on this team, it, it's going to be Surefour and Hydration. The things that they're able to do as their DPS are are amazing um their their tank play is going to be something to watch again obviously with fisher not around this year um so do they suffer from that um do they have kind of their stage one issues that they had where their tank play was weak or are they able to to survive it and support their tanks a little better to open up space for sure for and hydration to do what they do best which is just kill people it's it's pretty that pretty much that simple for them. For anybody who doesn't know, sure for won the uh, the one v one Widowmaker battle for crying out loud in the All Star weekend. Yep. Um, so color me surprised that it wasn't uh, a combination of Pine, Linkser, or Fleta that won that. That just shows you how good these DPS players are throughout the league and how much your team actually does matter to opening up space for you in games. Yeah, we're going back and watching Saya player also a nasty Oh yeah. Maker. Oh, absolutely. So, definitely, definitely. No, it was sure for. You know, you've seen Hydration play a lot of the projectile um, DPS. Surefour is an absolutely insane hiscan DPS player. So um, those guys are pretty pretty locked and loaded. Bishu played almost, almost exclusively D.Va during the inaugural season, something like 95% of the time um, with the occasional Zarya here and there. <laughs> um, probably be seeing him back on the D.Va, um, unless obviously they've been practicing some alternate compositions. And then we're going to see, I think Void is probably going to take into that main tank. Um, it's going to be between Void and Roar are going to adopt that main tank role. Um, Void actually has some has some time on the roster, um, but Roar's hero pool is arguably more geared towards a, a main tank role. So be interesting to see which one of them steps up and kind of comes out week one. It will be. Somebody's got to fill in for, for Fisher for sure because... Uh, Bishu's playing Diva to get the exact number. It's ninety-seven point three percent of his playtime is on Diva. Yeah, I mean he plays basically no one else. His Diva play is thirty-two hours, forty-eight minutes, and forty-one seconds. All right, nothing else is even a half hour. <laughs> so he's playing Diva. That's the end of it. Like yeah, that's what he's there. He's playing Diva. That's what right. It is. If he's in the game, you know what he's playing at this point, unless he decided to diversify a little further during the off season. Yeah. Um, but one of those other two is going to have to fill that main tank role. Because it's not like Bishu's bad at what he does. And looking at their schedule, I actually really like it. I think it's pretty balanced. There's nothing I look at and I'm like, oh man, this is a gauntlet. Or, hey, that's a cakewalk. 
moving through this, I would say, at, you know, week one, they're kicking it off Thursday night, playing the Seoul Dynasty. So that'll be interesting. It'll be kind of a, a great litmus test as to how the Dynasty are coming back from a lackluster end of the season of season one. Um, if Gladiators can come out swinging against a, a team that we know can be good, has the talent to be great, um, and whether or not they play up to that potential, you know, it'll be kind of telling. So, but other than that, I mean, it's a good balance of of season one teams mixed in with expansion teams, and I don't really see anything in here that stands out to me. Yeah, nothing, nothing that you look at and go, oh man, that's a rough stretch, or that's going to be a speed bump for them. They're going to have to survive that. Uh, fairly consistent matchups, honestly. Uh, looking at the the schedule, they should be right there for contention for the stage playoffs every stage. Um, and obviously, well within that top six, you would assume uh, area for for the playoffs. I think I'm most interested to see how they come out the gate. To be perfectly honest with you, with losing Fissure and with how they ended the season by both choosing the Valiant in the stage four playoffs and then benching Fissure for the the playoffs of the season, like how, you've got to find a way to pick yourself back up from making those two mental mistakes. Mm-hmm. And those, those are big mental mistakes. So they had nothing to do with in game in terms of like, Oh, we made this mistake in, you know, going this route or choosing to attack at this time. Those are simple, just like decisions that you made that you weren't even playing. You had time to think about. I don't, nobody really understands it, but can you pick yourself up from, from those and say, you know what? Own up to it. We made the mistake. Own it to yourself. That way you know it's not going to happen again. But more importantly, so you guys can move on from it. And then at the same rate, you know, how do they fill in for missing, missing Fissure altogether now off the roster? So they're going to get a tough test from Seoul. Um, that San Francisco shock team was much improved by the end of the year with the additions of those 18-year-olds that came in late in the season. Yeah. Um, so, but like you said, nothing that really scares you. They should they should be in contention each each stage. Um, for sure. Uh, I think it would be a surprise if they weren't. Yeah, and they'll have a great ramp up into seeing the Spitfire again in week one. Um, so they'll see Soul Dynasty, San Francisco Shock, and then Paris Eternal. So we should have a pretty good idea of what this team is doing and, and who's their strong players and, and how that fissure role is getting filled by the time they see the, the Spitfire again. So assuming again that Spitfire is going to be the team to beat, which we have no reason to believe that they wouldn't be. <laughs> There's no reason not to believe that's the best team in the league, though, honestly. But, I mean, if you're asking me right now about this Gladiators schedule, at least for Stage 1, I only expect – I don't not that I even expect them to lose twice, but, I mean, I don't expect them to lose more than twice. Let's put it that way. Like, mm-hmm. I'd, put, I'd put money on that right now with, with how they played towards the end of the year and how much they improved throughout the course of the season. You know, like I said, if they can just get over that mental hurdle of we made dumb decisions, they should be – how many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So five and two. They should be five and two at the end of stage one. Hey, are you here to hear first, people? Put the money down. <sighs> Amen. We got we to gotta take stands on something. <laughs> <laughs> this is certainly something I'm confident in, though. There we go. All right. That wraps up our look at the Pacific Division. First couple of teams. So next episode, tune in. We'll be covering the second half of the Pacific Division. So a lot more inaugural teams involved in, in the second half of that. If you're a fan of, of one of those, tune in. Something Brian and I wanted to do, thought it'd be pretty fun to kind of break up just players and scheduling talk a little bit, is run down some some top moments from season one, some moments, some things that we thought, oh my gosh, whether it's a glory play, could have been an epic fail, um, you know, might be, we're trying to highlight, you know, this was a great play from some, you know, from not a DPS. So the first one I want to cover actually took place in 
the playoffs. Um, so this is to set the stage. Gladiators are taking on Spitfire in the quarterfinals of the playoffs to win it all. The Gladiators are coming out on attack on King's Row. And for a while, actually, nobody notices this. But Surefor had actually stayed in the spawn. He he was on the hero Brigitte, which is not one of his normal characters. He had stayed in spawn. Now, what the rest of the gladiators do is they actually extend, they completely bypass the first point. And they actually work into, there's some, uh, there's some high ground actually behind the point. So they completely blitz through the point, come around, come back up on the high ground behind the defending Spitfire. And what this forces the Spitfire to do is readjust their position to put them in direct line of sight of the spawn. So as soon as the Spitfire repositioned, Surefore switches over to Widowmaker, goes up to a window in the spawn, first shot picks Widowmaker, second shot takes out Mercy, and third shot actually takes a good chunk out of, um, out of D.Va. So it was, actually, it was this brilliant play. You could tell they clearly practiced it. They knew exactly what they were doing. It wasn't like a gimmicky something. They knew exactly how to work around the point, force the other team to reposition into a line of sight of where of where Surefour would be. And they had clearly lost track of him. Even the announcers lost track of him for a little bit. So it was just an incredible play. Kind of showed, hey, we've practiced this. Kind of we have to practice every scenario, every situation. We're always looking for that advantage. So it was just a really, really amazing play in the playoffs. To kind of, and it actually, the Gladiators go on and, and take that game one. Yeah, it was certainly impressive to watch. It was very cleverly thought out. Uh, obviously, like you said, in practice time, scrimmages probably didn't use it at all, but in practice time with just themselves, very well thought out, very well planned, and obviously excellently executed. Sure for standing still, honestly, in spawn, doing nothing while the team rotates around behind point one, makes, makes London rotate, and then... Surefour just pops off. It's it's great to watch. I would love to see more more things like that kind of happen uh, overall. But that was certainly a very very impressive moment because it opened up the entire point. London had no idea what was coming, and you could tell. Um, so this is my uh, number five biggest moment of uh, stage or excuse me season one, and I'm gonna take you all the way back to stage three week one with. The San Francisco Shock playing the Seoul Dynasty. Um, they're on Junkertown, and San Francisco is trying to push and cap uh, the third and final point. Uh, the payload is, is not far out. You're through that little walkway where you can go underneath uh, and not have to go all the way around that big wheel thing. Um, and the cart's just kind of sitting there. But Seoul is on the other side of it. They're legitimately on the other side of, of the wheel, and they are trying to keep the shock from being able to even get to the cart right now. Problem is, they forgot about Dante, and he is not on their radar at all. He's he's on the backside over by the cart, and all six members of the Soul Dynasty are out pushing th- to the choke point, back towards close to that third spawn point for attackers. And Dante hops on the cart with under a minute left. And just completely rides it to the end. Soul never rotates until he's basically already capped the point, and by then it's just too late. The announcers don't even know what's going on. They're focused on the action because Soul is using using alts and you know making a big, big push to keep San Francisco from even getting out of that area towards the cart. 
and they think they think the timers run out when they see that the game has ended. And then they look back and they realize Dante has pushed the card as tracer all the way to the end and won the map, or at least won that round, excuse me, to tie the map for for the San Francisco shock. So a little bit of an epic fail on Soul's part and really just an incredibly smart play by Dante to get lost in the fray and be forgotten about so he can back cap the card on Junkertown. Yeah, I actually distinctly remember at the end of that play, the announcers are like, oh, and Soul holds... Wait, oh wait, Soul didn't hold and and then they actually realized that Dante had pushed the cart. So it was, it was actually really funny. And we kind of mentioned this in episode number one, where you can have a great fight, you can think the fight's going your way, um, everything's lining up, and you know, either you forget to touch the cart, forget that the cart you're defending the cart, something like that. So it's happened on more than one occasion where a team has lost sight of the objective, ends up losing a map or losing a round because of it yeah you you can't just get fixated on one thing you have to make sure you're paying attention and for me as a player i'm always focused on what's going on for the objective basically like i i actually like having the objective it makes me know or lets me know where my focus should be uh overall obviously you have to focus on small things here and there but if you get too wrapped up into doing something like essentially spawn camping somebody and you didn't realize somebody was not in spawn that kind of stuff happens real fast Yes, it does. And that's actually one of the things I love a lot about Overwatch is just with the diversity of characters, with all their different abilities and everything else, there's just so much that could be happening at any one time and you have to be paying attention to all of it. That wraps up episode two of the Let's Break It Down podcast. Um, Did a great deep dive into the Pacific Division and we're going to dive right back into the Pacific Division with episode number three. We're going to be covering the Valiant, the Shock, the Dynasty, the Dragons, and a new expansion team, the Vancouver Titans. So stay tuned with us. Catch up with us on social media. Connect. Talk to us. Let us know how we can improve. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody.